Awesome. Hey, let me ask you a question. Let me raise this up a little bit. What uh, what were your, your some some of your dreams, your ambitions when you were a kid? What I mean, what did, what did you want to be when you grew up? Come on, shout them out. A rock star. Hey now, you're a rock star. Get you here now. You were going to marry Sean Cassidy. What a life ambition. Right there. That is thinking big right there. Going to marry Sean Cassidy. Anything else? Wanted to be an astronaut. Yeah, that's a good one. What else? Meteorologist. You could be wrong a lot in that job. Right? What a great job. Just be wrong like half the time. Anything else? What did you want to do? Yeah. Wanted to be rich. Didn't matter what you did, just so long as you were rich. How many of you, let me ask you a kind of a follow-up question. How many of you are doing now what you dreamed of doing then? Are you married to Sean Cassidy? Better deal. Yeah. Probably not too many hands would go up with that question, right? Isn't it, isn't it unusual? I mean, when we're young, we have all these dreams, all these ambitions, all these possibilities before us, and we're not concerned about limitations. We just, we want to be an astronaut. We want to be rich. We want to be a rock star. I don't care what it's going to take to get there. I just, that's, I'm not concerned with that. I just, want to do that. But as we grow, our possibilities seem to shrink, don't they? I mean, when we're young, we have all these big dreams. But then as we grow, as we get older and wiser, hopefully, the possibilities in our life seem to diminish. It's kind of sad, really, when you think about it. You know, underneath all of that, and you know, I wanted to be a professional athlete. You know, that's a pretty common one. But underneath all of that, whether you wanted to be a, a, a professional, uh, whatever, a rock star, marry someone famous, have a big job, president of the United States, whatever the case may be, underneath all of that is this desire for significance. That's really what we want. I mean, we may have different interests, we may have dreamed of different things, but underneath all of that, no matter what your dream was when you were a kid, was this desire to matter. We wanted, we wanted our life to count. We wanted to make a difference. We wanted to have an impact. So that, that, that is at our core. Every single person who's born onto this planet has that within them, I believe. This, this desire to matter. This desire to be significant. But here's the sad thing, is that many people, if not most people, at this point in their life, they don't feel as though they're significant. In fact, it, 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 at times we feel very insignificant. I mean, we're just one of six billion plus people. I mean, if I was to be gone today, would anybody remember that? A month from now, a year from now, ten years from now, would it even matter that I was here? And I know that's kind of a depressing thought, but sadly that's the reality that most of us live with, is that our life isn't really all that significant. But, but what if, 
we could live an extraordinary life. What if we could live a life of significance? What if our life could once again be filled with all of these possibilities? All of these dreams. What if that could be the case? Well, today we're starting a series that's exploring that that very thought, that very concept. What if? What if? And we're going to take five weeks and we're going to talk about what if our life could be filled with possibilities as we dedicate ourselves to serving Jesus Christ. Because I, I think that that is where true significance really happens. I believe that God desires to do huge things in you and through you. I honestly believe that. And it's usually us that gets in the way of Him doing that. Whether it's because of fear or apathy or whatever the case may be. But I still believe that God desires to do unbelievable things in and through us. He desires for us to be significant. Now, you may never be famous. You may never be rich. Sorry, Stan. You may never marry Sean Cassidy. But your life can be one of significance. So today we're going to start with the question... What if I could start over? What if I could start over? You ever think about, what what if I could go back and redo parts of my life? I mean, those moments that you just blew it, you know? I mean, you just, you went this way, and man, you should have gone this way. And you look at it, and you go, oh, man, that that was not good. That was not a good decision. What if you could go back and do those moments over? You ever seen the movie Groundhog Day? Where he keeps living the same day over and over and over again? And he makes all these blunders and he learns and he goes back and he does it right the next time and he learns a little bit more and all this. What if, what if we could do things over? What if we got a fresh start, a new beginning? Now I grew up, I'm going to date myself a little bit here. But I grew up when video games were just starting to come onto the scene. And I remember one Christmas, I got the Atari game system. Remember, who, remember, who remembers Atari? Yeah, yeah, a lot, of you, a lot of you are dating yourself too, yeah. The Atari. I mean, you had Asteroids, right? You had Pac-Man. You had Space Invaders. And my all-time favorite video game ever, Pong. (laughs) Remember Pong? I mean, what a great game. Two sliding little discs and a ball going back and forth. Doop. 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 And you doop, 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 doop. And you're sliding. Oh, good times, good times, I tell you. Pong. But one of the things that I remember about that, I got the game and we got it all set up. And, you know, back then you didn't have the, the n- nice little yellow and red and white cords that you just plugged into the TV. You had to wire the bad boy right into the television set. So there was fear of death. It was kind of exciting because you're actually bare wires to bare wires. Yeah, that was the fun part of the game, really. I only got shocked once or twice. 
But I remember sitting there with the system and your plan. And of course, it, it saves your high score, right? So whoever had scored the high score, it's there, locked in the memory of the game forever. And I would sit there for hours and hours trying to beat the high score. And inevitably, here's what happened. I'd sit down and let's say I'm playing a game of asteroids. And I'm playing there and, and, and right out of the chute, I'd get just smacked by an asteroid. I didn't just keep going. No, I reached over and hit a little reset button. And the game started over. Because I'm trying to beat the high score. I'm trying to do it better than anybody's ever done it before. And so if I get off to a bad start, I make a mistake, a miscalculation, a bad judgment, hit the reset button, game starts over. A brand new beginning. Wouldn't it be cool to have a reset button in life? I mean, you're in a situation, it goes horribly wrong, you make a bad choice, you just reach down and go, let's do that again. Let's try that over. I mean, in golf, you get a mulligan. You take a swing, you hit a shank it into the woods. Hey, I'm going to take a mulligan. Put another ball on the ground, you try it again. On my computer, favorite key, the undo button. I love the undo button, right? You try something, all your stuff disappears. Undo, I didn't like that one. Love the undo. I hear my kids outside playing kickball, softball, whatever. Hey, do over, they call it out. Do over. Don't you wish you could just go, hey, hold on a second, do over, let me do that over again, because that didn't go the way I wanted it to. Wouldn't it be great to have that? To have something like that where you feel like you could just get a fresh start. Here we sit, January 10th, New Year just passed. I think this is why people love the New Year. Because it feels like a fresh start. I mean, you, you just look back and you go, man, 2009, I really screwed that year up. But now it's 2010. I can, I can do it better this time. It feels like a fresh start. Every single one of us, every one of us, have things in our life, things that we've done, choices that we've made, that we look back on now and we, we regret them. We think, man, I wouldn't do it that way if I had a choice and a chance to do it again. Maybe there's even things in your past that you think are unforgivable. You look back in your life and you think, wow, that was horrible. That was not good, what happened. It feels unforgivable. Or maybe you feel unusable. That here, as I said, in 2010, I don't know that God could really use me and do anything significant in my life because of something that happened maybe decades ago, or happened to you decades ago. There are people here this morning that are feeling that. I know that. But there's not a person here that doesn't look back and say, man, I regret that. I, that was not a good choice. I wish I could undo that. You know, the Bible is filled with characters that are just like us. That's one of the things I love about the Bible, is it doesn't overpaint its heroes. They are flawed just like we are. They make bad choices and mistakes just like we do. And it's filled with people who are desiring to start over, a fresh start, a do-over. And today, this morning, we're going we're gonna to look at, I think, one of the more famous, if not the most famous do-over 
found in Scripture. It's the story of the prodigal son. And as we look at this in Luke chapter 15, there's two characters that we're going to focus our attention on. And I want, to, I want you to know this as we start to read it. There's, there's the father, and then there's his youngest son. Those two main characters that we're going to focus on today. And as we focus on them, as we read the story, I want you to, as, as we see the father, I want you to think of your heavenly father, God Almighty. And as you read about the son, the youngest son, I want you to think about yourself. So we're going to put ourselves into the story, and we're going to see what God has for us from this passage today. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 15, and we're going to start reading in verse 11. It says, And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And he divided unto them his living. So here's a dad, and he's got two children. The youngest one comes to him one day and says, Hey, Dad, I want my inheritance now. Now, let's pause for a second. You've got to think about how insulting that really is. If my kids came to me, maybe when they're a little older, and go, Hey, Dad, you know, we're really tired of waiting around for you to kick the bucket. Can you just give us what, what we're due now? I don't really want to wait for you to croak. Just give it to me now. How insulting. I I don't want anything to do with you, Dad. I'm tired of waiting around. Give me what's mine now. How hurtful it must have been to the Father. And yet, He does it. He gives it to Him. He lets Him have the inheritance. Even though... He knew it was not a good situation. He knew most likely that the son was going to take it and and blow it, which we'll see in a moment he does. Even though he knew that this choice was a bad choice, that it was probably going to lead to some harm in this child's life, the father still allows the son to make the bad choice. He's letting him exercise his free will. See yourself in the story. God the Father, though it hurts Him, oftentimes allows His children to make bad choices because He values the free will, the ability to choose that He's placed within each and every one of us, even when He knows that the choice that we're about to make is a bad one. Let's continue in our story. Verse 13. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together And took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. So he packs up all his stuff, his wealth included, his inheritance, and he takes off. And so we see that the selfishness in the son causes him to separate from his father and then give his life over to a life of sensuality. That's where he is. He separates from the father. And it's not as though he just went down the block. It says that he went into a far country. He got as far away from his dad as he could. And then he begins to give himself over to a life of sensuality. You know, every single one of us, 
is no different than this young child. Because we all look at life, wherever we are, and we think, well, maybe, maybe there's something better over there. Maybe life would be better if I had this, or if I was experiencing this. And it's rarely the case. I, I, I put myself in the shoes of this child, and I can imagine he's not a young, he's not an old guy, and he's probably looking into a situation and thinking, you know what, Dad's really cramping my style. I mean, if I could, I, I, I know better than he does. I mean, he doesn't really get my generation. And so, you know, if I could just get away from him and do my own thing, then life would be better. I wouldn't feel so confined, so restricted in my activity. That's a common tale in life. But it's also a common tale with God. So often we look at him and we think, wow, he's really eliminating me. He's keeping me from doing the thing that I want to do. It's kind of boring here. I want to get out and experience some things. And what we find is that the grass isn't always greener on the other side. My pastor used to say, yeah, the grass is greener on the other side, but the water bill's higher too. There's always a price that has to be paid for the decisions that we make. He, this young man is led astray by a desire. Notice what happens. Verse 14. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would fain, or he would have liked to, have filled his belly with the husks, the corn husks, that the swine did to eat. And no man gave unto him. Hard times, right? This, this young man fell into hardship. Here he is in the land, blows everything that he had, spent all of his inheritance, and now it's so bad that he's working for a guy, feeding his pigs, and he's so hungry that he wanted to eat what the pigs were eating. Not good. He's in a bad way, without question. But you know what? I don't think it's an accident what happens here. I don't think it's an accident that a great famine came into the land. You see, God often uses things like that in people's life to get their attention. Now, you could make a case and say that this young man built his own trouble, no doubt. But he couldn't control whether or not there was a famine in the land. He could have taken steps to prepare for the famine, but the famine's not his fault, and yet it's there. You see, God oftentimes uses circumstances in our life to get our attention. C.S. Lewis used to say that pain is God's megaphone. He uses pain in our life to get our attention. He's there. He's going, hey, listen to what I'm saying. Listen to me. And we're going, eh, yeah, whatever. And so he busts out the megaphone. He says, you're not going to listen to me? My still, small voice? Let me yell in your ear! <laughs> he gets our attention. 
through the things that happen in our life. Why? I can see it in your face. You're thinking, how cruel. No, you got it backwards. God loves you so much. He loves you so much that He doesn't want to watch you waste your life. God didn't want to watch this young man waste his life on things that didn't matter. And so He brings some hardship into his life to get his attention. He does the same thing in our life. He loves us so much that when we start to wander away, things sometimes go terribly wrong. He's trying to get our attention because he understands what's at stake. And he doesn't want to watch us waste our life. This young man is a physical, emotional, and spiritual wreck. I mean, physically, it's obvious. He's so hungry that he's willing to eat pig slop. That's how hungry he is. Physically, he is in a bad way. But spiritually, and as a result, emotionally, he's also in a bad space. Now, we may not get this as Westerners and non, of non-Jewish descent, but catching the story that Jesus tells his audience that this guy is in such a bad way that he goes to work for a pig farmer. His job was to feed the swine. That Jewish people consider pigs to be unclean animals. They couldn't have anything to do with them. And so this young man is in such a bad shape spiritually, he's disregarded his heritage. And Jesus' audience, hearing this story, would have been, oh man, that's bad. So we have to understand the severity of the situation that this young man is facing, facing. He is destitute in more than a physical way. Verse 17. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I love the way it says that. And when he came to himself, he came to his senses, we would say. He's there about ready to eat what the pigs are eating. And the light bulb goes off. He comes to his senses. He realizes how big of a mess his life is. He realizes how his choices have put him in this desperate situation. But, but hear me, this is an important point. It's not simply the realization. It's not solely the badness of his condition that causes the change in his life, but it's the realization of the goodness of his father. He looks at his situation, and he knows it's bad. There's no doubt. But I don't think that that's the thing that really ultimately drives him to the decision that he's about to make. I think it's not the badness, but the goodness of his father that causes him to make a very good choice in his life. He doesn't sit there and go, man, this is so bad, and wow, I really need to change. He may have done that, but what's recorded here in Scripture for us is this. How many servants are in my father's house? 
that have food and enough to spare. It was the goodness of his father that he's thinking about. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, check this out. It says this, the goodness of God leads thee to repentance. It's not just the badness of our situation that causes us to repent. That word repent means to turn, to change. But it's the goodness of God. I think we need both. We need a realization of where I'm going, where I am is not good. It's not where I should be. But we also need a realization about how good God is before we truly make a change. Verse 18, it says this. The son says this. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. The first thing the son does is make a resolution. Just had New Year. Millions of people around the world, if not billions, made resolutions. I'm going to do this, or I'm not going to do that. This man, this young man, makes a resolution. He says... I will arise and go to my father. He's resolved to do that. That's an important point. It's not enough for him just to sit there in the filth and mire of his life, having a pity party for his condition, thinking about how good it would be to be back home. He has to resolve to do something about that situation. It was a choice that he made that put him there. And now it's a choice that he has to make, an action that he has to take to get himself out of the condition that he's in. So he's resolved to do this. Notice that it says here in the passage we just read, And I will say unto my Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. What is that? That's repentance. He's resolved to do this, but he also brings with him an attitude of repentance. As I just said, the word repent means to turn. He's going one direction. He says, I'm going to stop that and I'm going to go the other direction. I've been going away from my father's home. I'm going to start going towards my father's home. Notice the attitude that he has. He says, I have sinned against heaven and against you, father. I am not worthy to be called your son. These aren't mere words. This is an attitude that he brings with him when he goes back to the Father. It's an attitude of repentance. It's not simply an attitude of, yeah, I'm really sorry about that. I've shared this before. Some of you will remember this story. But as a parent, I came, actually I should say, my son caused me to see what it means when sometimes we say we're sorry. You know, as many parents do, when my children are fighting back and forth, what well, could be anything. I mean, the darndest things cause arguments. And so, you know, break them apart, talk to them, tell them why it was wrong, and then inevitably you come to the point where you say, you need to tell your sister, you need to tell your brother that you're sorry. 
You can relate to that, right? You've been there. Well, my son, Drew, is 11 now, and this was when he was much younger, maybe four or five. He came to me after one of these episodes, and he, he looked at me and he said, he said, Dad, he said, you know, when, when you tell us to say that we're sorry, and I say, sorry, I don't really mean it. <laughs> I said, thanks for letting me in on that little clue there, buddy. Sorry. Sometimes I think that's the way we come back to God. Sorry. I got caught. Or I'm in a bad way. So let me tell you I'm sorry so you'll stop the loud noise of the megaphone in my life. We've all been there. We just want the pain to stop. So I'm going to tell God I'm sorry. And maybe you'll stop the pain. That's not where the son is. He wants the pain to stop. Nothing wrong with that. But he is truly repentive of the choice that he made. I'm not worthy to be called your son. He knew that the choice that he made was a big problem. Verse 20. And he rose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Look at the father's response. It's amazing. It says, when he was a great way off. Listen to me, guys. If you'll simply stop and take a step back towards God. He'll come running. He'll come running to you. He doesn't make you get all the way back to His level. He doesn't make you get your life entirely cleaned up before He'll allow you to come into His presence. You take one step towards Him, and He's bolting toward you. First step is yours. But he closes the gap really fast. Notice that it says that when he saw him, I don't know about you, but I get the impression that the father's there and he's watching and waiting for the son to come back. Now, I don't know how long the son had been gone. Could have been months. Could have been years. Doesn't really say. He's been gone long enough to blow everything his dad gave him. And to make a mess of his life. But as soon as the father sees him a great way off, it's like he's standing there, he's waiting, he's watching for the son to come back. He wants him to come back so badly. He's not going to make him, but he wants him to. And he's watching. And he's waiting. Patiently waiting for us to come back as well. He won't make us, but he's watching and he's waiting. It says in the passage that the father ran to him and had compassion on him and fell on his neck and kissed him. Don't miss that. He didn't stand there with his arms crossed. Finally came to your senses, huh, boy? 
I told you this is what had happened. Didn't listen to me, did you? He doesn't respond that way, does he? He goes running. He embraces the son. Falls on his neck and kisses him. He's willing to forgive. Willing to forget the choices that have been made that have brought them to this point. He's just overjoyed that the son has finally made the good choice to turn back toward home. See, because of the the son's choice, the father was dead to him and, and the son was dead to the father and now they've been reunited. Check it out, verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The son is reclothed. He says, go get the best robe and put it on. Now, this would have been the father's festival robe. Catch that. He doesn't say, hey, go get, go get him a robe. He's really dirty and doesn't smell very good. Just get him a, get a whatever. Just get him a robe because let's get him out of this. He says, no, 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 no. Get him the best robe that I have and put it on him. He clothes him with that garment. When we come home and we put our trust in Jesus, God clothes us, the Bible says, in the righteousness of Jesus. So that when He sees us, though we're dirty and don't smell good because of our sin, God doesn't see that. He sees the righteousness of Christ upon us. We are clothed in that. You see, God gave us His very best. His very Son. It says not only that, but He put a ring on His hand. Now this is an indication of His sonship. He's inviting Him back into the family. You are my Son. And this is a a sign of that sonship. And He says, put... Put shoes on his feet. Again, he's ignoring the son's request to be a servant. A servant wouldn't have had shoes in his house. But he says, bring him some, bring him some shoes. Put something on his, on his feet. The Bible's very clear that we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That we are heirs of God's son, Jesus Christ. In essence, we have a ring on our finger that shows our sonship. We're sealed. It's a seal of our sonship. And not only that, the Bible talks about our feet being shod as well with the preparation of the gospel of peace. He's given us the good news to take and to carry to other places. We are clothed. We're reclothed, just as the sun is. Verse 23. He says, And bring thither the, the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. There's rejoicing. A little bit earlier in this passage, as Jesus is kind of telling the series of three stories about something that was lost in each one of them, he takes a little uh, parenthesis right in the midst of those stories. I think it's verse 10 in Luke 15, 10. 
He says, look, there is great joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. Do you understand this? That when someone turns back toward God, that there's a cosmic celebration that happens in heaven. <laughs> I've shared with you before, we have this unbelievably bad impression of what heaven's like. Very stodgy. Right? Everybody's buttoned way down and real uptight and pursed and let's not smile, let's not move. It's church, by the way. It's an eternal church service. Oh, that's not it at all. I see angels, man, just jumping and hooping and hollering and swinging from the chandeliers if they've got those in heaven. And they're just going nuts and they're having this party. Why? Because they understand what's at stake. And so when one person makes that decision to turn from the way that they're going away from the Father back towards Him, there's a celebration that takes place. He says... This is my son who was dead and is now alive. Our sin, the Bible says, has separated us from God. And in essence, we're spiritually dead. Now, we're physically alive. At least I think everyone here is. You appear to be. But if we haven't turned back toward him and accepted the gift that he's offered, the Bible says that our condition is one of spiritual death. But we can be made alive. It also describes our condition much in the same way that the sons is described, and that is being lost. No direction. Where do I go? I don't know what to do. He says, though he was lost, now is he found. Just as the son had a fresh start, with his Father. So too, you and I can have a fresh start with God. He gives us the do-over. Mankind, we've made a mess. No doubt. No question. There's not a one of us that hasn't done things in our life that we know have separated us from God. And yet, he's willing to make it right. And get us a fresh start. Maybe you're here this morning and your choices have taken you far away from God. You're in a far country. It's a mess. It's not good. But I want you to know this morning that he's willing to forgive and to forget. And he's waiting. And he's watching. And if you'll take the first step, he'll run to you. And everything will be made right. I'm not saying there won't be consequences for decisions that you've made. The son, there were, there were consequences. His inheritance was gone. He wasn't ever going to get that back. But he was at least invited back into the father's house. That relationship was restored. It was reconciled. If we'll do that, if we'll turn back toward him, He'll make all things new. Check this out. I love one of my favorite verses in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 
do-over, the fresh start. He makes all things new. My challenge for you this morning is very simple. Two words. Come home. Come home. Maybe you're here this morning, as I said, and you're so far away from God, it doesn't feel like you could ever get there. One step. All he asks you to take, and he takes the rest. He makes up the distance. Maybe you're here and you need that relationship. You've never had that relationship with God, that connection with him that's found through trusting Christ as Savior. Come home. Maybe you're here and you've had that relationship, but choices that you've made in life, things that you've done, things that you haven't done, that you should have done, have started you down a road away from God. The challenge is the same. Come home. Turn back towards home. He's there, waiting and watching. What if your life could be filled with endless possibilities? What if your life could be significant? The answer to those questions begins and really ends in this first decision and most important decision in life, and that's the decision to come home. Would you join me as we pray together? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, I just want to pray for, the, for everyone that's here this morning. I want to pray for anyone that is here that has never known you as Savior. Maybe they're new to this whole Christianity thing or Maybe they've been in church their entire life, but they've never made the decision to have a relationship with you. I so much appreciated the testimony of Tim and his sincere words about falling away from you, but then finding his way back. Undoubtedly, there's people here this morning that find themselves in that same situation. And I pray this morning that you would give them the strength the courage, the resolve to take that step back toward you by receiving Jesus as Savior. I also pray for those that are here that are already believers, but for whatever reason, they've started down a path that's taking them away from you. I pray today that they would come home, knowing that you're a compassionate God that's willing to forgive and to forget that's willing to bring us into your home. But not only that, to give us a purpose, a meaning, a place where we can find significance. Not because of anything great that we do, but simply because we are your children. Work in our hearts this morning, Father. Do something miraculous in our midst. Father, we, we, we are unworthy of you. And we just ask this morning 
that you would be at work in a mighty way. I just want to invite you to keep praying, just heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody looking around. But I, I want to pray for you specifically this morning, if I could. If, if you're here this morning and, and, and you find yourself far away from God and you don't have that relationship with Jesus who came to save us, if that's you, but you'd like to have that relationship this morning, would you just indicate that by slipping your hand up? I'm just going to pray for you. I'm not going to come get you. I'm not going to point you out. But if that's you this morning, you want that relationship with Jesus Christ, you want to come home, would you just slip your hand up in the air? I want to pray for you. Yeah. Several hands. Maybe you're here, as I said, and you're, you're already a believer, but you feel yourself wandering away from God. And maybe it's a step away, or maybe it's a mile away. Wherever you are, come home. If that's you this morning, and you find yourself just slipping away, taking steps away, but you want to come home, I want to pray for you as well. Would you just acknowledge that by, yeah, hands, yeah. time to come home, guys. Father, you've, you've seen every hand here. Lord, you've seen the hands of those that desire a relationship with you. I pray this morning that your spirit would come and fill them and that they would have peace, that they would understand that the price of their salvation has been paid through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That they would understand that it's not through works which we have done, but by your grace and mercy that we're saved. I pray for those that are here that are believers, but find themselves just drifting away, walking away from you. Lord, this morning they've taken that first step toward you by just raising their hand and saying, look, this is where I am. Lord, this morning I pray that you would just help them to sense your presence and know that just as the Father embraced the Son and had compassion on him and was willing to forgive, that you too, as our Father, have fallen on our neck, have embraced us, and have compassion on us. Just happy that we've made the decision to be back home. Father, I ask this morning that your spirit will continue to minister in this room and, and help people as they make choices and, and strive and struggle to make changes in their life. It's only through your spirit that we can do these things. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.